Hello, everyone. You are listening to CCG Global Dialogue podcast with Dr. Henry Wang Huiyao, founder and president of the Center for China and Globalization. Professor Nai actually is a is a university distinguished service professor, Amherst, and also former dean of the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Uh, he received his bachelor degree from Princeton University, and he has a Rhodes Scholar uh, scholarship to the Oxford University, and he's had his PhD in political science from Harvard uh, University. So he has worked in three government uh, agencies. Uh, so a very impressive uh, career he has. Uh, from uh, 1977 to 79, uh, Joe served as a deputy to the Under Secretary of State for Security Assistance. Science and Technology, and chair the National uh, Security Council Group on Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons. So, actually, in recognition of his service, he received the highest the Department of State accommodation, uh, the, the Distinguished Honor Award. And also, in 1993 and 1994, he was a chair of the National Intelligence Council, which coordinates intelligence estimate for the president. He was awarded the Intelligence Community Distinguished Service Medal, and also the uh, the, one, uh, the other part is in 1994-1995, he served as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, where he has won the Distinguished Service Medal. So Joseph uh, is uh, uh, very famous for his, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, academic and uh, also. Uh, Uh, the uh, 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 scholar uh, career, and uh, uh, I, I remember I was at the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, uh, you know, 11, 12 years ago. You, you were so kind to actually uh, interview with us, and also we, we had a, a book uh, that uh, you have uh, uh, also uh, wrote a preface for us. So I uh, really appreciate that. And of course, Joe is a fellow of American Academy of Arts and Science, of the American Academy of Diplomacy, and of the British Academy. And also, also in a recent survey of international relations scholars,、uh, Professor Nye was ranked as the most influential scholar on American foreign policy. And also in 2011, foreign policy named him one of the top 100 global thinkers.、Uh, so, Professor uh, Joe, I, I, you know, today we are really、uh, pleased to have you, and uh, uh, perhaps you can say a few words to to. Uh, to our uh, online audience, uh, uh, you know,、uh, in China and, and elsewhere.、Just、well, it's a pleasure to be with you and to、uh, visit the Center for China and Globalization, even if it's only virtually. I look forward to the day when、uh, we can once again、uh, greet each other、uh, personally. But、um, I、uh, think the topic of How power is、uh, changing in the world,、uh, and how that's going to affect the relations between the United States and China,、uh, is one of the absolute central topics of our century. In the recent book that I published,、uh, "Do Morals Matter?"、Uh, in the last chapter, I say that there are two great power shifts going on in、uh, this century.、Um, one is a power shift from、uh, west to east. Which means from、uh, basically Europe and the Atlantic to the Pacific and Asia.、Um, if、uh, you think about the world in, let's say, 
1800, um, Asia was half of the world's population and half of the world's economy. By 1900, Asia was still half the world's population, but only 20% of the world's economy. And that was because of the Industrial Revolution in Europe and North America. And I think what we're seeing in this century is a return to normality, um, normal proportions. And um, it's a long process, um, but I think it's an extraordinary important power shift. Many people see this as the rise of China, and certainly China has been central to it, but also it starts really with the rise of Japan after the Meiji Restoration, and uh, it will continue also with the rise of India. So Asia is, is obviously China's big part of Asia, but uh, Asia is a broader concept. So how do we manage that power transition uh, from uh, uh, West to East in a way which is beneficial for all countries and which doesn't break down into uh, uh, great power rivalries, which are destructive? That is, uh, is one of the great power shifts. The other great power shift is uh, what I would call vertical rather than horizontal. And that's the power shift from governments to non-governmental and transnational actors. And there, this is driven by technology and by changes in uh, economic, uh, not economic, but in ecological globalization, things like pandemics and uh, climate change, which don't respect boundaries and which no government can control working alone, but has to in fact control by working with other governments. And that's why in my book, I talk about the fact that the first type of power shift, the one that uh, you call, I would call horizontal, uh, is one that um, can lead to uh, what you call power over, competitive power uh, in which we think in traditional terms of power over other countries. But when you look at this other power shift, uh, the vertical uh, from governments to uh, transnational, uh, that requires a different form of power, which I call power with rather than power over, because no country can solve those problems alone. So if you take climate change, for example, um, China cannot solve climate change by itself. The United States can't solve it by itself. Europe can't solve it. It's going to have to be cooperative. And yet it's tremendously important for each of us. If the Himalayan glaciers melt, that's gonna destroy agriculture in China. Um, if the sea levels rise, that's gonna put much of Florida underwater. But neither of us can deal with that acting alone. We have to work with each other and that's the importance of power with. So what I argue in the book is that these two power shifts uh, lead to emphasis on two different types of power, power over others and power with others. And we're gonna have to learn to live in a world where we manage both simultaneously. And uh, that's, that's not easy. Uh, people always like things to be simple. It's either one or the other. In fact, it's going to be both. Thank you, thank you, uh, Joe. I, I think you uh, illustrated very well. I mean, uh, the the power shift, of course, but uh, but also uh, horizontally, uh, power over uh, to power with. Absolutely. I mean, uh, 
uh, you are the uh, authority on, on, on power uh, uh, narrative, particularly the soft power. I mean, you, you have published uh, 18 books and of course uh, hundreds of articles and uh, you're, you're also a familiar name in China and uh, uh, known as father of the soft power. Uh, as a matter of fact, your 1990 uh, book, uh, Bound to Lead, The Changing Nature of American Power, was published in China in 1992. And, and China uh, CITIC Publishing House uh, actually uh, published also your uh, 204 book, Soft Power, The Means to Succeed in World Politics in uh, uh, 2015. And of course, your, your most uh, book that you are talking, uh, that do moral matter, President and Foreign Policy from uh, Franklin Roosevelt to Trump, uh, just published last year, uh, absolutely uh, uh, add a lot of new uh, dimensions. So, so I think uh, CITIC uh, Publishing is, is really looking forward to publish your, uh, your uh, new book in, in, in China. Uh, so perhaps, uh, Joe, we could uh, start our, uh, our dialogue as well. And uh, I think what you have just opened, uh, very good, uh, uh, you know, uh, the theme of our discussion uh, today. Uh, so you actually, you, you first coined the term uh, uh, soft power uh, in your 1990 book, which is, uh, you know, uh, uh, 30 years ago, uh, that uh, bound to lead that, uh, that the but also challenge the conventional view that uh, the, uh, the, the, the decline of American power, but America actually is, uh, is still a very powerful country. And uh, so, so how do you th see the uh, American soft power uh, 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 since then? And what, what, uh, what we can uh, learn and, uh, and also uh, the, uh, uh, for example, American still has, uh, you know, universities, uh, has uh, best universities attract talents from all over the world. And uh, and also, uh, but but given the Trump situation, what has been uh, in the last several years? Uh, so, what do you see the uh, gains and losses of American uh, soft power, which you you have invented that term? Well, soft power is the ability to uh, influence others through attraction rather than coercion or payment. And uh, I first developed this idea back in, as you said, in. 1989 and 90, when there was a widespread belief at the time that America was in decline. And I thought that was uh, incorrect. And, uh, but after I totaled up the usual resources of military power and economic power and so forth, I said, you know, there's still something missing, which is the ability to attract. And that's why I developed this concept of uh, soft power. Now, if you look back over the years, American soft power uh, goes up and down over time. Uh, in the last uh, four years under President Trump, we've seen a considerable loss of American soft power. Trump's uh, populist nationalism and his uh, 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 attitudes in general made America less attractive and um, I think that uh, the last four years have been bad years for American soft power. You can measure that by looking at uh, public opinion polls like Pew poll or Gallup poll and so forth of international opinion. Um, on the other hand, I think it's likely that American soft power will recover under President Biden. Um, he's already reversed some of the things that Trump did which were particularly unpopular such as the uh, uh, 
withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accords or withdrawal from the World Health Organization. Uh, and so those are things that uh, help. In addition, his, his attitudes more generally, I think, are less uh, nativist, nationalist, and therefore uh, will make the United States more attractive to other countries. But does it indicate American decline? Um, no, I mean, the interesting thing to me is that there are always beliefs that America's in decline. It comes in cycles. And um, what they miss is that the ability of the Americans to uh, be resilient, to regenerate themselves. Uh, take the 1960s. The United States was extremely unpopular around the world because of the Vietnam War. Um, but by the 1970s and 80s, American soft power had been restored. Um, and so in that sense, while we've had a bad four years under Trump, um, I don't regard that as a sign of American decline. I think it's more a, a, a typical of the cycles that we've gone through in the past. And I expect that we'll probably recover from this one as we have from others in the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. And uh, uh, but we know that uh, the, the world has really changed quite uh, quite a lot uh, compared with the 90s and uh, and the last end of last century. Uh, for the for the first 20 years of, of this century, we see the globalization really expanding uh, 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 rapidly, and also multinational has been operating worldwide, and also somehow the the uh, 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 as they're operating worldwide, but then also that uh, they're probably not really benefiting enough uh, uh, their, their home country or their coast country where we see the gap. Uh, for example, in the U.S. is, is uh, between rich and poor is widening. And uh, uh, so, so that we generate a lot of populism, uh, nationalism. Uh, what do you think about this kind of deglobalization uh, really uh, has a damage of, of the soft power, not only for, for, for the U.S., but for other countries as well? So, so in terms of we... We're seeing setbacks uh, for the uh, for the soft power because I think that you know you, when when people have enough uh, hard power, as you said, everybody looks for attraction, want to be more attractive, and then soft power actually add more values to that. But but now we are having the world getting harder and harder in, in terms of infrastructure. The soft gentle part uh, is is disappearing a little bit. So how how can we address that? Well, I think you're, you're, you're right that one of the things that globalization has done is um, produce challenges uh, to uh, different groups within domestic society, and that has uh, stimulated uh, populism and nationalistic reactions. Uh, so if you're a factory worker in, uh, let's say, the middle of the United States and you uh, lose your job because the job has gone to China, or to uh, uh, Vietnam, uh, you're not likely to be in favor of globalization. Um, and you'll react against this. And that's many of those people wound up being uh, voters for President Trump. Um, and then again, uh, I think you could argue that this increased the uh, uh, inequalities that uh, while some people benefited from globalization, others didn't. And that rising inequality uh, is another tension on the political system. So a country's soft power depends uh, not just on the words that it says, but on the deeds that it does and the way it practices its own values at home. 
Um, in that sense, I think that uh, what we've seen is a uh, globalization has produced a degree of populist reaction, which has produced a polarization in politics, which has undercut the attractiveness or soft power of the United States. And I think that uh, uh, is a real factor. I think what one of the things that President Biden is doing is focusing on his domestic agenda to try to cure many of those uh, aspects. And uh, I think that uh, uh, he is on the, headed in the right direction for that. But I think it's, it's definitely true that, there, that globalization produces a, a reaction and the reaction can in fact undercut soft power. Doesn't mean the soft power is less important, uh, but it does mean that it's harder to maintain under conditions like that. What you see when you have disruptive uh, uh, social change is a tendency to populism and nationalism. And you see this in many countries. And uh, that nationalism is attractive to people inside the country, but almost by definition, since it sets a country apart um, in an antagonistic role, uh, it's not attractive to others. So, I mean, this is, this is a problem for the United States. It's a problem for China too. If you take the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy, that's very popular inside China as part of the response to Chinese nationalism. It's not very popular to other countries. Mm, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that uh, you, you, you mentioned of the, of the soft power is really, I think something uh, probably go down in history as, uh, as something really to make the world more uh, friendly, uh, more charming, more attractive. Uh, you know, people really pay attention, country pay attention to its soft power. And, uh, and I think also you, you give uh, quite a good uh, 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 comment on, on, on why well, you actually wrote an article in Wall Street Journal in 2005 on, on the rise of Chinese soft power <laughs> and, uh, and uh, citing Yao Ming and also the film Quantum Tiger, Hidden Dragon and also to aid uh, uh, Summer Olympics. Uh, but also, I, I think one of the soft power probably uh, is that uh, you know, China now uh, trying to have uh, uh, you know, a lot of uh, students studying in the United States. We hope that more American students study in, in China, but also outbound tours about 100 million uh, uh, before pandemic. Uh, so, uh, but also, you know, China has a 5,000 years history and, uh, and also the, the Confucianism and also uh, now some new, new soft ideas really getting into the population uh, like uh, 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 you know, President Xi's uh, uh, Green Mountains, Gold Mountain, you know, this environmental uh, con concept is really getting a uh, uh, hold in China. And, uh, and, and also, I, 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 I can see the, uh, for example, the collectivism, uh, a bit of that uh, 5,000 years history is helping China uh, uh, fighting pandemic as well. So, so what do you see the, the China soft power and, and what can be done uh, to improve or maybe you could add or, or because I think you'd be really a great observer of different countries' soft power and, uh, and not only United States. Well, Chinese soft power has many sources. Um, one, of course, is traditional Chinese culture, which is very attractive. Um, and uh, indeed, the very idea of soft power uh, can be traced back to great Chinese thinkers like Lao Tzu. Uh, in other words, it's, it, I may have coined the words soft power, but the concept of 
getting what influencing others by attraction uh, is is in ancient Chinese philosophy. So uh, Chinese traditional culture is a is a source of, of soft power for China. Another major source of soft power for China is China's uh, remarkable economic performance. I mean, China has uh, raised hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in the last uh, 40 years. And this is, uh, this is widely admired and um, it, makes, it provides attraction and influence for China. So I think in, 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 in there are deep sources for China's soft power. I think the, there are also problems in China's soft power. Um, one is uh, when you have conflicts with your neighbors, uh, for example, as China has with many countries uh, related to the South China Sea, or where you have, or our problems, let's say about the borders with India, uh, that makes it hard to generate soft power in those countries. You can set up a Confucius Institute in New Delhi to teach Chinese culture, but they're not going to attract Indians if Chinese soldiers are killing Indian soldiers on the Himalayan borders. So uh, one problem for Chinese soft power is the existence of these uh, uh, conflicts about territorial conflicts with uh, a number of neighbors. Another uh, uh, limit on China's soft power is the, uh, the assistance, insistence on tight party control of civil society. A great deal of the country's soft power is produced uh, not by its government, but by its civil society. And uh, that it makes the country more attractive and more resilient. If the party insists on clamping down on everything in civil society, uh, it makes it a, a less flexible, less attractive. So if you have a creative uh, genius who's uh, uh, produced by Chinese civil society, uh, the best thing to do is to, um, to celebrate that. Uh, mm -hmm. not to try to control it. And we saw this just this week with this uh, uh, Chloe Zhao, the Chinese film director who uh, won the Oscar for best director. Um, and that should be celebrated in China, not censored. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, absolutely. I think the, the, uh, the, there's, uh, there's uh, of course, uh, 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 sometimes they have a different interpretations on that, but I think, uh, you know, China probably with a 1.4 billion uh, people population, and then uh, you know the standards and also uh, also measure the soft power is is uh, is is a gradual process. I, I would say probably, for example, that uh, uh, given the 5,000 years history, uh, given the uh, co collectivism uh, 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 society, and also uh, you know maybe people willing to sacrifice a little individual freedom, but for the sake of a community. Which has demonstrated very well at the, this uh, COVID-19 fighting uh, in China. Which you know what happened in India is is very uh, tragic. We've been seeing these days, but in China, basically everywhere you go, <laughs> there's no more uh, COVID-19 cases now. So so yeah, I think some of those things uh, 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 is is also a changing dynamic. Of course, uh, uh, you, you, uh, there is always room to improve. Absolutely, but, but I think you know, giving a country as big as China. And also, everything is uh, is uh, 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 experimenting forward. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you, you, we probably take a, a lot of uh, different uh, perspectives 
And uh, I, I agree with you, you know, the 5,000 years history, the culture, uh, and also how to really stimulate the uh, individual uh, innovative spirit is, is, a, is a constant, uh, uh, you know, subject for China to, to get more uh, uh, master of that. So, so, so this is really uh, uh, great. Uh, we, we, we talk about this, you know, we find out what are the things we can uh, do better, what are the things America can do better, and of course, uh, uh, the world can learn from each other, of course. Uh, but in your recent book, I mean, this is really uh, interesting that uh, the uh, Do Morals Matter, you have a recent new book, uh, which I just published last year. Uh, so, so you provided a, an excellent analysis of the roles of ethics uh, in, in, in the US uh, foreign policy and uh, of American era after 1945, uh, through each president from Franklin Roosevelt to, <laughs> to President uh, Trump. So, 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 so now we, we, are, we are facing a, a more challenging, much challenging world, more complex world now. And uh, so what do you think about President Biden, uh, uh, you know, uh, since he's about 100 days already in his office? Uh, uh, so you, you just analyzed the 14 president uh, before him. Uh, so what do you think about uh, President Biden? Uh, and also, well, I, uh, yeah. No, I say Biden uh, <clears throat> has, it's much too soon to, to judge him uh, historically, because we only have seen uh, three months of his uh, of his presidency, um, but on the three months that we've seen, the hundred days, um, uh, he seems to be doing pretty well. In other words, uh, he President Trump took a, a a position of being divisive uh, for political support, and his popularity in the American public never rose above 50%. President Biden has taken a different approach, which is to try to appeal more broadly. And his popularity is somewhere measured around 57%. Um, and uh, that's an indication of a different style of leadership that, that Biden has than what Trump had. Um, I think that uh, is, a, is a good sign for a promising future. But as I said, it's much too early to judge uh, at this stage. But, but do you think that, uh, you know, both President Biden and actually, actually President Xi, uh, you know, they both attended this uh, global uh, summit on climate change. Uh, with the world of, is a facing pandemic, facing climate change, uh, do they demonstrate uh, some kind of moral leadership? I think to really, if China and US can work together on this, uh, go, uh, on this uh, pandemic fighting, even more so maybe on pandemic fighting, we probably have a much uh, uh, more organized world, but I think that uh, that kind of moral leadership is for both President uh, Biden and President Xi is really important uh, uh, these days, uh, aren't they? Well, I think that's exactly right. <clears throat> I've uh, argued that we have to think of the US-China relationship is what I call a cooperative rivalry. There will be areas of rivalry. Uh, for example, different views on uh, the navigation of the South China Sea. Um, that will be an area of traditional type of rivalry. But uh, when it comes to ecological interdependence, which is illustrated by climate or by uh, pandemics, um, viruses don't respect nationality. They just want to to reproduce themselves. 
So they cross borders without any respect to what governments say or <laughs> politics. And the same thing is true with, uh, with uh, greenhouse gases. Um, and that sense, uh, we have to be able to realize that ecological interdependence, which is a, a new form of globalization, is one where it's gonna require cooperation. So while there'll be a rivalry on certain areas, there has to be cooperation at the same time. I was very pleased to see that, um, uh, that you had uh, at this virtual uh, climate um, uh, uh, summit, which Obama, I mean, which uh, Biden uh, uh, had last week to see the presence of President Xi, President Putin and others, because it really is essential that we overcome the rivalries in the areas where we must cooperate because there's no alternative to cooperation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so, so you, you actually uh, said uh, that uh, in, in the past that uh, the development of soft power uh, need not be a zero-sum game. Uh, so, so if we can have a, you know, establish a, a, a cooperative rivalry and, uh, uh, but, but, you know, where area we need to compete, but where area we need to co collaborate and cooperative. Uh, you know, become the norm of the of the of the of the time would be, uh, you know, very good. But also, we try to find attractive uh, uh, parts of each other, so so we can, uh, you know, national interests of China and, uh, and also the United States are partly uh, converge. I mean, in terms of fighting a pandemic, in terms of uh, uh, climate change, but also uh, partly con conflict, as you mentioned as well. So so the soft power probably can reinforce each other. So if we can find the, the soft spots and uh, really press on that. Uh, that that would be really uh, great, and uh, uh, so that easy for China and U.S. to manage the conference. And uh, so, do you think that the U.S. and and, and both U.S. and China uh, can gain the softer power from uh, from cooperating? You know, any 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 more areas we can collaborate. For example, uh, uh, President Biden announced uh, that the U.S. is going to propose a two point three trillion on on infrastructure, and you I probably know China in the past. Uh, uh, for decades has built a su super infrastructure. You know, they have a two thirds of the global uh, high speed uh, train networks now. And uh, out of the 10 uh, largest container uh, ports, seven of them in China and also longest bridges and things like that. So, uh, and, and so can we really work on that? And, uh, and Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is one of good example that China is working with European countries, except US and Japan now. Uh, maybe we could do work with the U.S. To, to upgrade that to a world infrastructure investment bank so that we can help uh, developed countries and maybe both U.S. and others and China too, uh, so that we can co cooperate with more interest of each other. And uh, I remember last time when we, when we had the same panel with Boal uh, webinar, we, you talk about uh, have a China use a set up a COVID-19 fighting fund, fund to, to, <laughs> to work on that. Uh, so what do you think about those uh, areas that can increase our soft power with each other so we can collaborate uh, even more so? I, I think that's correct. Um, soft power uh, doesn't have to be zero sum. It, uh, if, if, for example, China becomes more attractive in the United States and U.S. becomes more attractive in China, that can help both of us to overcome our differences and our conflicts. So uh, I, some years ago, um, uh, I, I remember uh, uh, co-authoring an article with a distinguished Chinese scholar, uh, Wang Jisu of uh, Beida, um, 
we pointed out in that article that soft power can be positive sum in which both sides can benefit simultaneously. Uh, not always, but in some instances. And that's why it's important for the US and China to find areas where they can cooperate because we'll both look more attractive in the eyes of other countries if we do so. Most countries don't wanna to have to choose in a harsh way between China and the US. And to that extent, when we're seen to be cooperating, particularly on the production of global public goods, you can imagine that increasing China's soft power and increasing American soft power at the same time. I, I did, as you mentioned, uh, I, I did mention the idea that the US and China uh, could work together on this whole idea of strengthening the, uh, the health systems of poor countries, including their vaccine capabilities, uh, which would be good for us as well as good for them, uh, and which would also enhance the soft power of both our countries. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And uh, so, uh, uh, you know, that uh, China and, and the U.S., uh, there's many ways actually being the two largest economy in the world. I mean, also particularly the U.S. has been building this uh, uh, post-war uh, global governance system uh, that China is actually uh, uh, benefiting from this system, also trying to add on, trying to uh, 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 work more actively on that. It, it, it's uh, enormous uh, areas to work together. So, so, so you actually, uh, I, I, I noticed that you don't really like this, uh, uh, the, the metaphor, you know, he hit his trap that maybe uh, the, 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 the rising power challenges ruling power. And you said that, you know, either there is a, there is a, a you know, challenging part of it. There's also fear part of it, but you know, we, we make a self-fulfilling prophecy on that, but uh, let's not overemphasize that. So that's really an interesting, a uh, uh, thing, uh, maybe you can elaborate a bit on that. That's really an interesting thing because really we, we don't want to get in the stuck into kind of a deadly confrontation because we're, after all, we are so much interdependent now. Well, I think that's right. My, I, uh, I'm, I think there's some validity in the fact that a rise in power can create fear in an established power uh, and that that can be a source of conflict, but it doesn't have to be. Um, even thinking back to uh, uh, the Peloponnesian War, which Thucydides described, um, uh, he said the causes of the war were the rise in the power of Athens and the fear it created in Sparta. Uh, we can control the amount of fear. In other words, if we become too obsessive about our fear of each other, then we could fall into something like the Thucydides trap. Uh, my own view is that we don't have to succumb like a theater. Uh, in uh, basically, as I see it, China does not pose an existential threat or threat to the existence of the United States. China is not trying to take over the United States. And the United States doesn't pose an existential threat to China. We're not trying to take over China. So in that sense, uh, we will compete, but we should limit the fears. It's not as though it's life or death fears. Uh, in that sense, uh, it, it, going back to Thucydides, we can, the, the rise in the power of China uh, is something which is likely to continue. There's not much 
we can do about that. Only China will do something about it, which is how it behaves domestically. But the, um, the fear that creates in the United States is something we can do about, get something about, which is to not over-exaggerate uh, China, not become overly fearful. Competition is healthy. Uh, frankly, the idea that the Americans will improve some things at home, such as infrastructure, uh, because China is leading the way, uh, let's say on high-speed rail, that can be healthy. Um, but uh, if it becomes fearful um, or obsessively fearful, uh, it can become destructive. So my, my view is that um, uh, we should be careful of the language we use. I don't like this language some people are using about a new Cold War uh, between the United States and China. I think that's a misreading of history. Uh, it, it implies a, a deeper and more intractable conflict than is really the case. Um, if you look back to the real Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, there is almost no economic interdependence. Uh, whereas with US and China, you find just the opposite, a half a trillion dollars of trade. Uh, if you look back on the real Cold War, there was no social interdependence. Um, uh, whereas today, more than 3 million Chinese come to the United States as tourists and 300,000 as students. And uh, so you have much greater economic interdependence, social interdependence, and the uh, new aspects that I mentioned, ecological interdependence. Uh, during the Cold War, we were less worried about climate change or pandemics. Uh, and uh, so there are, there are reasons for why this increase in globalization and interdependence uh, make us uh, or urge us to be careful about new, not using metaphors like the Cold War, which were uh, true for a time of history but not necessarily accurate descriptions of the current period of history. Yes, uh, uh, thank you, thank you, Joe. I think absolutely, you're, you're, you're a great promoter of a piece. I think uh, the word that, uh, about uh, Cold War is really uh, obsolete and, uh, and absolutely right. You know, we have economic dependence, we have a social dependence, we have a, a ecological dependence, we have a technology dependence probably as well. And uh, so uh, it doesn't really make sense uh, to, uh, to, to, to decouple or, or to really uh, to confront. But, but you have also, uh, I remember last time when you were in China, uh, I, I, I went to see you, you, you talk about uh, cooperative rivalry as well. And uh, that is really a great uh, term I think you're using. Uh, uh, so so for, for cooperative rivalry, how can we do better on that? I mean, <laughs> there's, uh, uh, you know, there's, we, we see that in the US, uh, uh, Congress is keeping passing new new regulations or new uh, uh, bills and the think tanks putting out old kind of reports uh, depicting uh, depicting uh, cold wars happening. Uh, so so I mean you've been experiencing all those. You have been in the Ministry of Department of Defense and and all those security issues. You you've been teaching power, power uh, uh, of the world geopolitics for 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 a lifetime. So what what, what can we do better to have this cooperative rivalry uh, relationship? Well, one thing is, is to um, strengthen the ties that we have. I mean, the, the students, the visitors, the community.
communication. These are important uh, aspects of what I call social interdependence, which help to uh, develop deeper understanding uh, between the societies. Uh, and that's important. The other is that on the economic interdependence, um, there will be some areas where there will be uh, decoupling of areas that touch high security. Uh, for example, um, Americans are very worried about uh, Huawei or ZTE controlling uh, 5G telecommunications in the US for security reasons. I don't think you can see more economic interdependence there. Just as China has not wanted to allow Google or Facebook to operate freely inside China because of security reasons. So there'll be some areas where uh, there'll be decoupling, but that doesn't mean we want to see overall economic decoupling, which would be extraordinarily costly for both countries. And then finally, the, this uh, question of how do we manage the, uh, the relationship overall so that we avoid miscalculations or accidents? Uh, you know, the people who talk about 1945 and the Cold War are picking the wrong date for historical analogy. As Henry Kissinger points out, uh, 1914 is something we should pay more attention to. All the great powers in uh, Europe at the time uh, did not want World War I. Uh, they expected uh, in their competition in the Balkans to have a short, sharp conflict which would uh, redress the balance of power and things would go back to normal. Instead, through miscalculations and failure to manage the relationship, to manage the competitive parts of the relationship, they wound up with four years of war which destroyed four empires and destroyed the centrality of Europe in the global balance of power. Um, we have to be extremely cautious and careful that we don't allow some incident in the South China Sea or over Taiwan or something to uh, lead us into a uh, something which nobody intends uh, with great unintended consequences. And that's going to require constant communication. Uh, so we need to enhance our cooperation uh, in areas of interdependence where uh, it's possible to cooperate. But on the areas which are competitive, we have to be much more cautious and attentive to how we communicate to each, with each other to make sure that we don't have miscalculations. Those are the two things I think we have to do to, uh, to avoid uh, uh, this relationship uh, becoming uh, a zero-sum game. I think, as I mentioned earlier, I, I remain uh, relatively optimistic about the long run, but humans make mistakes. Well, that's, that's the nature of being a human. And so we have to guard against those mistakes. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I think you are uh, absolutely right. I think, you, as you said, communication and, uh, and also um, uh, you know, avoid misunderstanding and, and uh, it's as, is also important to, to really to uh, uh, promote uh, mutual understanding and, and avoid those kind of uh, 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 mistakes and uh, and uh, you know disasters happen and but I remember well you you actually said I mean you know the Cold War is not possible that uh, there, there there's there, there are several factors too you know I mean Americans shouldn't be worried about uh, China uh, because uh, you know the geographically <laughs> U.S. is uh, 
and uh, you know, so far with uh, with uh, uh, no friendly neighbors, Canada, Mexico, but uh, uh, but also uh, the the energy. U.S. is already sufficient on energy now, and where China still <laughs> uh, need a lot of supply, and and population. U.S. is probably the biggest in the, in the developed world on, on the population, and of course also technology-wise. So U.S. has many things are still leading, and uh, uh, so the so the so the worries on China, the uh, uh, the 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 you know the the concerns on China should really be uh, less so, I, I suppose. And whereas I think uh, uh, China has a, a lot more people interested in uh, you know uh, uh, learning from U.S. We have a uh, 400,000 students uh, you know want to study in the United States, and uh, and also as you said, three million tourists uh, going there too. So. Uh, but China is also uh, uh, now is one of the largest trading nation with one, over one, almost 100 countries now, and uh, so so hopefully the benefit produced by both sides can uh, really uh, uh, you know uh, sh uh, cut down the, the the mistrust. So how can we really build up some more trust? And then uh, I mean it's very valuable to hear your your your, your sober mind that at this critical uh, uh, time, and also we are now 100 days after uh, President Biden. Uh, get into the office. How we can really shape an, uh, a little uh, a different uh, perspective for the for the future of the Sino-U.S. relations? Well, one of the things that both of us have to worry about um, is the rise of nationalism in our two uh, uh, countries. Um, I mentioned earlier that the effect of uh, globalization on creating inequality and disrupting jobs and so forth led to more populist nativist nationalism in the United States, and that produced uh, voters for President Trump. But uh, let's be frank, uh, there's also rising nationalism in China. If you look at the, at the, uh, at the Chinese web, you'll notice enormous uh, uh, nationalism. Um, and there's the, the feeling that in China that uh, uh, you know, there's still the, this argument about overcoming the, the uh, 19th century history and uh, as, a, as a form of recruiting support uh, when you do things like wolf warrior diplomacy, that's very popular inside China, but uh, those things are not healthy in terms of creating trust in other countries. So um, it's interesting, take for example, uh, the program China 2025 uh, about technologies. Um, that made sense inside China. It created fear in Washington. The fact that China was going to try to replace the United States in uh, a whole series of important technologies created fear in Washington. Or what, when President Xi Jinping said that China would be number one in artificial intelligence by uh, 2030, uh, that meant that it was read in Washington as well, China tends to replace the United States by 2030. So it might have been a good goal in terms of recruiting national support inside China, but there's always, for every political leader, there's what's called the two audience problem. One audience is internal, the other audience is external. And sometimes the messages that play well internally play badly externally. So I think on both of our sides, uh, given the rise in nationalism that's produced to some extent by globalization or the reaction to globalization, uh, we have to be very careful uh, about the two audience problem. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's uh, yeah, absolutely correct. I I, I think that uh, uh, you know it's a, it's, a, it's if it's a peaceful competition, maybe let's let's handle a bit more on the domestic side uh, uh, as well as as you said that. Uh, uh, you know, China is, uh, is uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, avoid those kind of a populism, but the same is true for the United States. And uh, we, we really need to maybe make the internal narrative and international narrative maybe combined a bit as well. And uh, uh, you, you, for example, you, you, you said uh, uh, the idea, uh, you know, American has this populism, also the gap you know, between uh, uh, rich and poor, also this racial, uh, uh, this, this, you know, differences uh, uh, that is uh, widening as well. Was China, you know, trying to, uh, I think what uh, China has been careful in the last several decades is trying to let, you know, minimize the gap a bit, you know, even though the rural and urban still have a lot of uh, differences, but, but at least China is trying to lift 800 million people out of extreme poverty so that they don't really uh, generate so much uh, populism and uh, dissatisfaction with the globalization or opening up of China. So, uh, so, so I think that uh, you know, lessons can be learned for, for, for both countries uh, on, on that as well. And uh, uh, the, the problem is how we can really get multinationals and all those big players. As you said, we may need more uh, uh, non-government, non non-profit, philanthropy, and all those things to work together for the globalization. To, so we have an inclusive and, and balanced globalization, particularly in developing countries now with, uh, with all the things happen on the COVID uh, uh, in, in the developing countries. Uh, so, so it's absolutely important that the US and China work together. Uh, we just, uh, last weekend, we celebrated the uh, 15th uh, anniversary of the pinpoint democracy. Uh, the slogan then was uh, friendship first, competition second. That <laughs> was a, a very, very interesting uh, one. So, so uh, but, but also I, I really hope that uh, 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 you know, veteran, uh, uh, you know, a professor like you, you you've been uh, seeing all the ups and downs. So, uh, so what 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 is, what what's your take on the future of uh, Sino-U.S. relations? Uh, I noticed you have given quite a few scenarios. I mean, uh, for the for the future, <laughs> for those five scenarios you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I uh, one can imagine a variety of scenarios. Anytime you try to guess the future, you have to realize there is no one future. There are many possible futures, and they're affected by events that we don't know about, which are unexpected, and they're affected also by our own actions and how we choose uh, what behaviors we're going to follow. So <clears throat> one can imagine futures of U.S.-China relations which are, are uh, bad and ones that are good. And we have to then say, what are the things we can do that can steer ourselves more toward the good uh, relations, which are beneficial to both. It's interesting, if you look back historically uh, since 1945, uh, we've gone through a series of relationships of, uh, uh, in, you know, for the first 20 years or so, uh, it, things were pretty tough um, after all. U.S. and Chinese soldiers fought each other on the Korean Peninsula in 1950s. Um, so we had 20 years, if you want, of a tense relationship. Then, as you pointed out, uh, we had uh, ping-pong diplomacy and the uh, easing of relations. You had the, the Nixon visit to Beijing, and uh, you had another 20 years then of improving relationships. Um, 
Then you had a, a period where um, uh, with the Clinton uh, administration, the desire as with a rising China to integrate China into the international order uh, through the uh, World Trade Organization and so forth. And then that lasts nearly 20 years, but you have uh, uh, with the uh, period of the arrival of Donald Trump, um, 2015, 16 and so forth, a feeling among many Americans that China was not playing fair, that it was subsidizing state-owned enterprises and in, uh, stealing intellectual property and uh, militarizing islands in the South China Sea that uh, uh, President Xi had promised President Obama he would not do. And there was a reaction against this. So we started a, another cycle. So we've gone through ups and downs roughly on 20 years. Uh, if you use that same 20 year cycle, we're in the middle. Uh, you know, it's, if it starts around 15, then 25 is 10 years. I hope that uh, it doesn't have to last that long, but it's quite possible that we'll have uh, intense competition for, uh, for 20 years. Uh, my own personal view is, is what I said earlier that I don't think China is uh, an existential threat or a threat to the existence of the United States or that the United States is a threat to the existence of China. So in that sense, I think that you could imagine some period, uh, who knows, maybe we're talking about 2035, I, I, uh, where you'll see the cycle turn toward, a, toward better relations again. Maybe we wouldn't benefit and have it sooner than that. But as again, as any time you predict the future, you have to realize that uh, history is always full of surprises, that, uh, that uh, every time you think you know something, uh, there's going to be something which you haven't taken into account. So let's, uh, that makes it all the more important that we try to use our own actions uh, cautiously so that we don't take, get the wrong sorts of surprises. Mm -hmm. Great. And uh, absolutely, I agree with you. You know, that there's, uh, the China is no threat to the United States. And uh, I know hopefully U.S. is not a <laughs> threat in China. Uh, as well, I mean, uh, because U.S. has already has so much abundance uh, around its countries and uh, uh, very rich in, in all kind of resources, uh, uh, you know, that, that uh, uh, geographically so far away from China as well. Uh, we, you know, we are a center of, uh, of China and globalization, a think tank uh, uh, based in Beijing. But but I read you uh, one of your syndicate that you talk about. Uh, uh, you know, 2030, five scenarios uh, of of international. Uh, order of that, and uh, you know, number one is that uh, maybe the uh, the liberal international order is uh, is coming to the end because of the uh, you know populism and 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 also other uh, you know political forces, and and also you mentioned about uh, the the second is uh, scenarios maybe in a you know something something to the 1930 uh, scenario that uh, was. Uh, uh, a massive unemployment, uh, economic depression, and uh, also, a politician take advantage of that to become a more populist protectionism. So that's you know uh, scenario number two. Number three, you were talking about, and and China may also uh, be more active at dominating the, the uh, global uh, order on that. And then also, uh, you know, when the GDP of China uh, gets bigger to the United States and uh, and maybe also a multinational interest in China and and things like that. And the first, of course, you talk about the. Uh, 
uh, the green uh, global agenda, where uh, you know climate and uh, and all those things uh, changes, and and the COVID Marshall Plan probably as well, and and also the final ones uh, is uh, there's uh, there's more similarity. Maybe uh, uh, maybe we can co uh, co uh, coexist. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you are really a great predictor. I mean, I've, we we love to see your your your. A crystal ball for for the for the future of the global. I mean, we talk about China, U.S. Now let's talk about the global. Yeah. Well, I do think that you're going to see uh, an increased um, importance of the green agenda, uh, simply because this is something which obeys the laws of physics and biology, not politics. And as more and more people in more and more countries become aware of the importance of climate change and of the dangers of things like pandemics, I think that's going to put pressure on political leaders to take these issues more seriously than they have in the past. But it's not going to totally replace uh, traditional politics but I, uh, and traditional competition by any means, but uh, it will, I think, become increasingly important. And that means that the cooperative dimensions are going to have to uh, increase. Now we could still, we meaning the world, uh, the political leaders could still make mistakes and fail to see this or react to it. But I do think that's a source of potential optimism that, uh, that this agenda is uh, going to be uh, increasing because of physics and biology. Um, so I, I think that uh, uh, of the various scenarios that I sketched out for a post-COVID world in that project syndicate column, I thought the, uh, uh, the gradual evolution of the uh, world as we see it now uh, was the most likely, uh, but that uh, I put more emphasis on the green agenda than I would have, uh, let's say, before COVID. Uh, and so, as I said, I, I remain, um, uh, relatively optimistic that we can pull through this period. Yeah, uh, great. You, you're, you're cautiously optimistic because we are, we are absolutely dependent on each other. Uh, so so uh, maybe one of the questions I can talk with you is that now the, the Professor Burns may be rumored to be <laughs> the ambassador to China. I mean, he be, I, I remember, I mean, the 10 years ago, the 11 years ago, when I was there, he's already there. And uh, so, so what do you think that uh, the uh, the new uh, uh, you know, ambassadors or maybe uh, uh, that exchanges of uh, those uh, high level uh, contact that can really promote uh, uh, China-US relations. The first time we're having a public uh, uh, a servant, public servant. I mean, he has a lot of experience on that and also uh, at Harvard. Uh, so, so also you, you've been working with him at Aspen as well. Uh, you're a great friend. What, what do you think about that? Well, I think uh, uh, Nick Burns is, is an extraordinarily skillful professional diplomat. And, uh, but it, it's, it's, it's also true that all we have now is a rumor. And in the American political process of appointing ambassadors, you have to get approval of the White House, and then you have to get approval of the Senate. And there's, we're a long way from any certainty about whether he will be the ambassador. Uh, but I think the fact that, uh, that the Biden administration is, it, it, by rumor at least, considering somebody as one of our most skillful professional diplomats uh, to assign to Beijing is a good sign. It, it means that uh, we're taking the relationship seriously. 
Uh, Nick should be tough if he's ambassador, as he should be, uh, just like the Chinese ambassador in Washington has to be tough. That's his job. But he also has to be businesslike and professional and look for areas of cooperation simultaneously. I think those are characteristics of Nick Burns as a person. But as I said, this is all uh, premature uh, because really, uh, it, it, nothing has been announced uh, formally. However, if it does come about, I, I would regard it as a good sign. Mm -hmm. Great, great. And uh, uh, so we have uh, some questions uh, from, from, <laughs> from media we collected as well because they know that uh, you're talking with us. Um, so, so we have, uh, for example, we have a, a China Radio International and uh, uh, they were asking uh, if they are supposed to tell the young people of, of this year about three major events, uh, uh, except for the two war wars uh, that changed the world during the past hundred years. What, what would be your choice, uh, 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 the, the third event uh, that, that, that you would say? So this is from one of the, uh, you know, the China media as well. And, and also, I can, I can well, continue the, to, yeah. yeah. Well, um, I, I, the events by their definition are almost always surprises. Um, mm -hmm. There was a British prime minister, Harold Macmillan, who was asked a question about what's going to happen in British foreign policy next year, given this trend or that trend. And he said, the trouble, my dear boy, is events. And uh, so you never know how the events are going to turn out. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, who would have predicted COVID in, uh, in 1919? And yet that had a profound effect on all our economies and the world economy. So I think in that sense, uh, it's hard to know what events. What worries me are, as I said, uh, miscalculations. Uh, and in which people think if I push a little harder there, I'll get what I want. And it, there's pushback. And before you know it, uh, people are getting further along than they, than they want to be in their tensions. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, I worry about events that uh, by definition can't be properly described or spelled out now, but that could be taking us by surprise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have to be uh, really uh, uh, cautious on that. And we have another uh, news from uh, the, the Hongxin News in China. And uh, basically saying that, uh, uh, you know, the, after the outbreak of the pandemic, uh, and also uh, uh, particularly after uh, the uh, last four years of the Trump administration, uh, so there's, there's a growing nationalism in both China and the United States and also uh, led to the ex exaggeration of the, of the sense of threat between <laughs> our two countries. Uh, as, as you mentioned, the power can be divided into two types, power over others and the power with others. So the recent communication between uh, China and the United States on climate change shows the importance of a rivalry cooperative. Uh, and also in your opinion, uh, how the concept of power with others can be more deeply rooted in the hearts of the people. And, uh, uh, how we can really uh, uh, strengthen that, uh, you know, power with others uh, rather than over others. Well, I think uh, to go back to something I said earlier, uh, building on the interdependence we have, both economic and social, is one way to keep a uh, sense of <clears throat> understanding of each other's societies. 
and to thereby somewhat reduce suspicion. Personal contacts don't automatically produce friendships, but in fact, uh, interpersonal contacts um, do help to increase uh, understanding or empathy toward uh, the other. And so that's one thing we can do. The other thing we can do is when there are areas where we can cooperate, uh, such as issues related to pandemics or climate change, we should definitely uh, pursue those. And I think we're making some progress in that direction. Mm -hmm. Great. We have, we have another question from, uh, from People's Weekly, uh, as well as a media in China. Uh, it basically, it was asking, you know, President Xi has proposed uh, the concept of a community with a shared future for the mankind. And uh, uh, so, so China is actually thinking globally and the president, uh, she has mentioned that at the Davos as well for the, for, for, uh, for the meeting uh, you know, this year and also in 2017. So how can, how can the world uh, leaders you know, really work together with some common uh, uh, narrative? I mean, climate change is, is one. And uh, uh, so, so what else can we really uh, minimize the, the differences and then maximize the, the, the similarities, as, as you also mentioned. Well, I think the words that President Xi has expressed are, are welcome, uh, but people watch deeds uh, and ask whether words are met with deeds. So if we look at whether uh, China is moving in the right direction on climate change, uh, the speech that President uh, Xi gave at the climate summit last week uh, was very welcome. Uh, on the other hand, when we read um, the statistics, we notice that China is continuing to build new coal-fired plants. And some of these coal-fired plants will last for 30 and 40 years, putting out greenhouse gases. So I think people are going to want to ask, not just are there good words, but are there good deeds? That's true not just for China, it's true for the US. One of the interesting things is Biden's words on climate are good. Uh, he's now trying through executive actions and, and a program of decarbonizing uh, the economy to see whether deeds can follow up those words. So basically, um, I would say deeds um, have to follow the words. Yeah, uh, so, so one, one final question uh, uh, from uh, also uh, China uh, Review News Agency as well. So uh, he, he said that Biden administration continued to identify China as a, as a revisionist state and, and also uh, as a chief strategic uh, com competitor. Uh, so so would, uh, would Biden administration, you know, uh, uh, willing to uh, maintain some uh, healthy comp com competition with China while co collaborating with China? And, uh, and also, as, as, as we know, that uh, uh, we are, we are, we are uh, recently, uh, uh, Richard Haas, uh, the, the chairman of uh, Council of Foreign Relations, proposed, uh, you know, uh, maybe we should abandon some ideological uh, uh, differences and then let, let's have uh, six countries, uh, US, China, uh, Russia, India, EU, and, uh, and probably Japan, you know, form kind of some consultation mechanism. Uh, so, so would that be really, you know, because uh, if we really uh, cut the border into ideological uh, divide and uh, not really viewing the uh, actually uh, happening of, of every country in reality, uh, how can we overcome this kind of a, 
you know, uh, the, the uh, competition uh, really become a strategic comp competitor uh, or rivalry? Well, those are good questions. And we do have mechanisms for uh, uh, coordination and consultation. I mean, we have five countries, if you want, in the UN Security Council. We have uh, the group of 20, uh, which is the major economic uh, uh, forces in world politics. Um, and we also have the prospects for bilateral consultations. So there are a number of mechanisms that we have which can help us uh, to coordinate. Uh, we have to make sure though that, uh, uh, again, not just that we're having mechanisms for this, but that we use them properly. Um, and I think uh, I was encouraged by the summit in Washington uh, last week on the climate as an illustration that uh, that is going to be possible to do that. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, so, uh, so really uh, appreciate uh, uh, Joe that uh, you are taking the time to uh, to talk us. You know, you you've been you've been uh, you know been. Uh, uh, leaves through for, for all those fifties, uh, sixties, and you see all the all the uh, uh, historical events uh, happening, and, and you really uh, you know uh, have this uh, concept of a country uh, soft power, which is really uh, benefiting for us. Uh, we're actually quite uh, 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 you know you've been really attractive. We had uh, just about eight hundred thousand <laughs> viewers online to to watch this and. Uh, uh, so, uh, so in, 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 I really appreciate what you said on the, you know, China is not a threat, and uh, also, uh, you know, we, we, we should really, uh, it's a dependent world. We should really not think about uh, uh, decouple. Maybe some few areas, but not, you know, we have to live together. And uh, and also, uh, uh, you know, Cold War mentality is not really great, and, uh, and that is really we should uh, avoid that or may abandon that. But also communication, you said, is so important, and people-to-people -people exchanges, and uh, and also uh, you know all the soft uh, part that we should really increase. Uh, you know, you give a lot of good advice to how uh, uh, U.S. and China can uh, can um, can enhance soft soft power, and uh, and also with other countries too. So, so in the final uh, uh, conclusion remarks, what, what would you like to say to <laughs> such a large audience? So we're here into uh, live today. Yeah. Well, we're. We're all human. We're bound to make mistakes. There are bound to be tensions and competitions between uh, Chinese and Americans, but we have to keep it in perspective. Uh, we have more in common and more to gain from cooperation, and we have to keep that perspective. So I think uh, if we have an optimistic view about our potential to manage competition and to practice cooperation, I think we can look to a good future. Great. So, uh, Professor Nye, thank you so much. And uh, we appreciate your, your taking time to, to the dialogue with us. We hope to see you next time. And also thank for our audience and uh, uh, both in China and, and also other parts of the world also. Uh, so thank you, Professor Nye, very much. And uh, uh, good morning and, and good evening. Yes. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Hope, to see you. hope to see you in Beijing again. Okay. Bye-bye.